Hello everybody, this is Clint Locklear with Rant of a Free Trapper. We're going to cover three topics today. There's some things that has uh, really caught my interest and I think there's some life lessons here and there's some things to think about as we go along our daily lives. Uh, before we get into the show, I want to thank our sponsor, which is Funky Trap Tags and Supplies, stand-up company. They do a great job. Uh, I trust them completely because they have most of my product. Uh, they're shipping it out for me, and I wouldn't do that with somebody that I didn't totally trust. So just letting you know um, you know, about their character there. They have, they have good prices. They have an excellent... Uh, shipping response time they have all kind of the stuff you need inside of trapping so if you're looking for something like that give them a shot because if you enjoy the rant they're the reason the rants on here every week and not so sporadic so you know support the people that support the things that you like to do pretty simple it's a you know, it's, I think it's just one of those things in life you just feel better when you do. So they're also a member of the Fur Brigade, so you get 10% off if you're a member of that. So when you get their, uh, you see their prices, you can just take 10% off. So that's that's a that's like heck of a deal right there too. I want to start um, with a couple of easy things, and I want to get into a harder thing, and I'm hopefully I can pull it up on my phone that uh, I, I can kind of look at this. First thing I want to talk about, it's it's the buzz going around right now, and it's it's so common now that it is sickening of of just the climate that we're in. We had that actor that played, uh, he's a black gay guy, uh, lives in Chicago, plays uh, in a in a series called The Empire. I remember watching that thing. Me and Cindy watched the first one. I don't remember that much about it, but obviously we weren't that impressed because we never watched another one. So I guess it just wasn't our thing. I don't remember this guy in there, and I don't know if he was even in the first episode or not. But, and I'm sure, you know, just a quick rundown of what it is, is uh, if you hadn't heard, which I'd be shocked if you hadn't, but um he, he claimed that he was, before I get started, none of us knows exactly what's going on until uh, the jury and the lawyers and all that stuff get involved. Because whatever our bubble is, where we get our information, is going to put it on the side that they want to have it on because no one looks for truth anymore. So he's, he's proven, uh, you know, he's not guilty uh, unless he's proven not innocent. You know, that, that's the way, especially now, because he had to turn himself into the police today, which does not mean he's guilty, but it does, from a common sense point, look like uh, he really screwed the pooch on this one. But what he did is he uh, he got attacked, according to him. Uh, these two guys, they because he's black, they poured bleach on him. They're calling him gay uh, slanders. They had MAGA hats on and saying this is MAGA country like anybody thinks that Chicago is MAGA country and then they put a noose around his neck and they fought back and forth and you know he came out with this and then he started getting all these interviews all of this publicity all of this notoriety because today if you're a victim that's a high high way of getting social status in America the bigger victim you are, the more important you are. It's, it's not what you do, it's being a victim. 
And I don't know, uh, just because of that fact right there, you know, he got all of this free publicity that he probably would not have the money to get. He's crying on on shows. Uh, people are crying back with him. You know, he's talking about how people think that a, black, a, a gay black man is weak and they're not. And he fought back and punched him in the face and, and all this type stuff. Well, the police now say they thought something was weird when he called them and took them to the scene of the crime because he knew where all the cameras were and he just assumed that one of the cameras picked up the whole thing on on film. Well, what he didn't realize, the camera wasn't facing towards him but the other way. But that's a weird thing, you know, after an attack like that that someone is like, you know, it's, it's going to be all on the camera. He knew where all the cameras were. The other thing is, when the police were interviewing him on the video interview, he did it with a noose around his neck. Now, someone that was almost going to be hung or strangled with a noose, you're not going to want to keep that thing on your, your neck after it's over with. You're going to want that off of you. I mean, that's just basic human nature. But he wanted to be filmed during the interview with the, with the noose around his neck. You know, supposedly pour bleach on him because he should be whiter or whatever it is. And he was saying that the reason that the MAGA people uh, did this to him is because he stands hard against the president, more virtue signaling to his tribe, all this type stuff. Well, it's it's it looks like from what's now being said and everybody's running away from this kid is he hired two brothers they rehearsed everything they brainstormed how to make it the most atrocious he paid them like actors to do this so he could make anybody that doesn't like gays look bad anybody that doesn't like blacks look bad anybody that's a trump supporter look bad Plus, he gets a lot of notoriety, plus he gets a lot of fame, and he gets a lot of victim status. Now, I'm not going to pretend that I know exactly what happened. I think that's a, a, it's a foolish way to look at this. But I will say, if it is, and me and my wife had this conversation this morning, so she says I'm being too harsh on this, and she could be right. There, there's things about character of people and then when someone goes after someone's character in a certain way, in a public way that has money consequences and, and jail time consequences and stuff like that, I have this theory that I don't think America will ever go for because, you know, that would shut down half of the news stories probably in America because it's just, there's one made up one after the other. You know, the, the little white kid in Washington, D.C. from Cunnington gets up in the Indian's face and then you find out later it didn't, but they've already pretty much, that kid, it's all that kid's going to be known for forever. They were given death threats. We talked about that. Um, you know, so that was jumping to conclusions because you want to see something with someone with a MAGA hat on. Then you've got all the all these uh, waiters and waitresses that has been busted where they write down gay slurs on their ticket or color slurs so they can get on the news and get some fame. You come to find out later they did it. And all the college kids that are putting the swastikas in the universities and telling, 
you know, the black people to go home or go away or go to Africa or whatever they're saying. And then the footage shows up later that it's actually black people putting this up there. This has just become a common thing today. It's now a sport. It's an absolute sport to ruin other people's character. With very little consequences most of the time. Very little consequences most of the time. So my theory is very simple. Whatever the crime is that you accuse somebody of, you have to, if you're found to bring this just as the way that it is now, just to draw attention and you're making it up in false accusations like that, whatever the crime penalty that you're going to cause that person to go go through if you succeeded in what you're trying to do like see i don't know what the i'm assuming uh with with the 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 gay black actor that if the two supposedly which look to be actors now but supposedly uh black uh guys in maga hats i'm assuming that that is uh at a minimum a hate crime than today's world and at a minimum, it's going to be uh, salt and battery. Probably, you know, one of the lower lessons of attempted murder, or uh, not lessons, but uh, lines of attempted murder. I don't know what all you're going to throw on there, but, you know, you can, every time that someone goes to court, they throw everything they can in there and they use it as leverage. So let's say that. Aggravated assault is five years, and because of Chicago hate laws, that adds another two years. That would be seven years that he would be risking with somebody else's life or character. That's what I think he should have to serve, is the seven years and whatever the fine is. Now, my wife thinks that's a little harsh. I personally think that's actually what real justice is. When you go out of your way to destroy another person falsely and you bring it to the public light where there's going to be money involved, courts involved, public arena involved, if you're going to falsely accuse whatever the, the punishment should be, you should be willing to pay that yourself. Because if you get away with it, you know, you know, my example to her is a woman accuses like uh, uh, Trump's son of raping her goes to the media, goes to the congressional hearings, ends up in court, and it's all a farce, which, just like the lacrosse guys at Duke, which is exactly what that was, what would be the penalty of Trump Jr. if he was convicted of raping this girl? And it's all made up, mind you, and it's all just for political gain and for personal status gain and all that type stuff. What would the, the be? If it's 20 years, the girl that accuses uh, Trump Jr. of that should have to serve 20 years. Not filing a false report or some other type watered down where there's really not any type of um, real justice going on there. Because they're risking someone else's life. And, and that's what happens. You go to prison for 20 years, someone took your life. 
you're going to lose all your stuff because you can't work. So, I mean, it's going to put other family members in bad light. They didn't deserve it. The person that had the false accusation, they didn't deserve it. It's going to cause all kind of stigma going on because no matter what happens now, Kavanaugh, whenever he gives a judgment that is not up to the liberals' uh, standards, they're just going to say this is what happens when you get a rapist on the, the court. He's never going to live that down. See, I don't even know how you put a monetary or time uh, sentence on that. But it would be very, the, the simple way to me is that uh, whatever the crime would have cost the person that's being falsely accused, the accuser has to suffer that crime or that punishment. My wife says that that's probably too harsh because uh, you need to look at all the evidence and this, that, and the other. And she may be right. At a minimum, I mean, at an absolute minimum, the person that falsely accuses should, under great distress of their own finances, have to pay back every single penny that they cost that person with lawyers, lost work, anything that they can come up with where it costs them money. That other person should at least, at a very minimum, have to pay all that. And if they don't have the money, then their property gets sold. It gets publicly sold to pay for that. See, to me, that's what I think justice is. What I see in our court systems today is very little justice. It is very little justice. Because this is very different than someone that gets caught with, and I've never smoked it, but if someone gets caught in Tennessee, uh, you know, so many times, or certain states so many times with an ounce of marijuana, you know, I'm assuming that's not enough to be a distributor, but it's enough that you're going to have a good time. Well, with the, like the three strikes laws you're out without looking at any other evidence, that's pretty stupid. For one, the main reason is there's no victim in that crime. That's just a law made up. I think there should be a very di distinct difference in punishments for victimless crimes and victim crimes. And when you falsely accuse all, basically all white men in America, all people that aren't 100% pro-gay, and everybody that voted for Trump, because that's what this guy's claiming with his story, he's accusing all of those of being guilty. See, there's victims there. And what about all of the other stuff that goes on where it ratchets up the hatred between groups and tribes and races and religions and everything else that, that we get so into nowadays. What about all that? I mean that you should if if you're going to incite hatred through false accusations, then there should be a punishment for that. To me that would be true justice. Because Basically, people know that you can claim anything today and you either get away with it or you don't, but 99% of the time, you're not going to get anything but a little bit of embarrassment if you get caught. And, and that's, that's the wrong message. You know, if, if, if someone's going to accuse someone of, of rape, they should pay for the, what they were going to 
put the other person through for frivolous reasons. That just kind of makes sense to me. Uh, what do you think? I mean, I think that's a, it would definitely cut down on a lot of the, the crap that's going on now because you'd have to have, you'd have to be willing to put your own future at risk just to destroy somebody else's. And most people aren't going to want to do that. Now, the second thing I want to talk about is, uh, and before I get started with this, I am not, by any stretch of the imaginations, saying that Goldman Sachs is forcing or believes that sick patients is the best form of capitalism. I really don't know what the intent was besides maybe running algorithms. Possibly. I don't know. Just looking at different pharmaceutical companies, possibly. But what happened is apparently there's been a document leak from Goldman Sachs. Goldman Sachs is always in the crap. But it's one of those banks that was too big to fail and they made it even bigger, so I don't know what that means exactly. But it's it's one of these type, you know, one of the top five that funds pretty much everything, including your house, your car, um, you know, investments at businesses, uh, how you expand large businesses, how you get money to run experiments, all that type of stuff. It, it's it, This is kind of a scary thing to me, but I think it's very uh, eye-opening to somebody about their own life. What the document asks is, is it a good business model to treat patients where they're going to be cured, or is it a better business model to not cure patients and have them as lifelong customers from that point on? And the document is very clear that it is much better from a pure unethical capitalistic uh, view, in my opinion, that it's better to have sick people than cured people. And they give an example of this. There was a company that came up with a cure for hepatitis C. Hepatitis C is uh, really big uh, and it's out of control in Africa. When they did all the testing and they got the approval, they took it, you know, money starts flowing in because you've got all of these countries that are buying this drug and NGOs are buying it and you know people saving the world are buying it and they're giving it to all these people in Africa what the document clearly states is the problem with this model is having something that cures a disease is the money runs out because as more people in Africa got cured of hepatitis C they didn't need the medicine anymore And because there wasn't as many people with hepatitis C, there wasn't as many people transferring hepatitis C to get new customers for the drug. I could say patients, but it's, it's customers. So what does that mean? Well, I don't really know, but I think it's eye-opening. Just to think about. Because we've always heard... Well, they're never going to, I mean, I've, I've even said it. I don't think they're going to cure big diseases. 
And, and what I use for uh, that hypothesis is, one, it would it would destroy a lot of the economy. It would it would. Um, I just don't think them if they could if if there was a way to cure diabetes and cure cancer and Alzheimer's with a shot, even if that shot was a thousand dollars a piece, but it cured it. Think about all of the people that's in all of the nonprofits, all of the hospitals, all the pharmaceuticals, all of the rehab, all of the home health care, all of the supplies of the hospital. All that goes away. And, you know, you're going to be not having lifelong customers for those type things. And, and part of the reason I believe this to be true is because any doctor that went through medical school and can look at case studies inside their own practice and talk to other doctors and look around the world a little bit how to cure diabetes, type 2 diabetes is extremely clear. For about, from what, what, it, what it seems like, from me looking at a bunch of different stuff, about 98% of all type 2 diabetes is curable without a drug. When you look at the numbers of people that are type 2 diabetic in this country, besides the suffering those people go through where they keep, continuously gets worse and where it continuously causes problems in the family, where people are losing limbs and toes and digits and, and uh, causes a lot higher incidence in stroke and heart attack. I mean, diabetes is a nasty thing to have. But diabetes is a pretty simple thing, not an easy thing, but it's a simple thing where when people do one simple thing, most people no longer have to take insulin. But there's no way for the medical community to make money off of it. You know, in the early 1900s, it was, uh, I think it was 85% cure rate on type 2 diabetes. Once insulin was in a drug form that you could sell, nobody, ever. It's just a disease that falls down from an alien from the sky and zaps you with type 2 diabetes that you have no responsibility whatsoever for having it except for a very few hormonal issues and a very few uh, percentage of patients. It's completely life-based. The person with the diabetes calls them to get diabetes, and they can uncause themselves to get diabetes. But it's simple, but it's not easy because diabetes is pretty simple. You always hear about you know your sugar's high. Yeah, but that's not really what causes diabetes. Diabetes is a simple disease where you pump too much insulin into your body, and you become insulin resistant. And your receptors that want to take on that insulin resistant can't because of all the other crap you're eating when you look at it from a biochemical point of view. And it doesn't produce enough insulin 
So what do what does the medical field today do? They give you higher doses of what caused type 2 diabetes to begin with. It's not about getting you healthier. It's about keeping you alive. Now, if you're in a type 2 diabetes, I'm, I'm assuming when you take that insulin shot, you're glad you have it because you're not going to die. I totally get that. But what causes the high insulin in type 2 diabetes? You eat things that cause your body to release a lot of insulin. That's not the way the human body's worked. So when you get up in the morning and you have your oatmeal or your cereal and your orange juice, you just dumped a ton of insulin. Then you're going to get hungry because of the hormone insulin is going to wreck your system. You're going to be hungry by about 10 or 11. Does this sound familiar to anybody? And then you're going to eat a snack out of the vending machine and your insulin spikes and stays elevated. Then you go out to lunch. And you're going to be eating breads and grains and sugars and stuff like that. And your insulin stays spiked. Then you eat a snack because you're starving to death from all the carbs by 2 or 3 in the afternoon. And you eat another snack and you jump up the insulin. And then you eat a bunch of crap of uh, grains and sugars and pizza and hot dogs. All the stuff that tastes yummy. And your insulin spikes again. So you're hungry before you go to bed and you go get a, you know, a, a night snack of something sweet normally, some cookies, some ice cream, something like that, and you go to bed with your insulin spiked. So you're constantly dumping an unnatural amount of insulin into your system till you destroy your ability to make it and to use it. That, that's what type 2 diabetes is. It's too much insulin. You take away the products in the diet that jack up the insulin on a constant level, and there are hundreds of thousands of people that through keto diet, through a carnivore diet, through a very low-carb diet, through stuff like that, within a few months, they're no longer even taking insulin. That is not what your doctor is going to tell you. If he does, he's going to lose his license. That's why when you go to the places that talk about diabetes, what is the first thing they tell you to eat? Grains. That's the most moronic thing they could tell someone to eat that's on type 2 diabetes. Fruit. It, it crazily, especially uh, fruit, because the fructose and the sucrose it jumps up your insulin more than just sugar does. They tell them to eat hardly any meat. So the only thing left that they can really eat are carbohydrates, which are going to jump insulin up, and seed oils. Because you don't want to have any fat now. Good grief. You know, you don't want to actually like, have someone with a functioning brain to figure this out on their self. That's been pretty clear to anybody that can look, because there's doctors' carcasses all over America and the world where they try to bring this out in a public way, and they get in trouble. They lose their license. They're discredited. They're doing now. Who's doing all this? 
discrediting of doctors, pharmaceutical companies. So is the purpose of treating type 2 diabetes to have a lifelong customer for the doctors and the, the pharmaceutical or is the purpose to get people off of insulin so they don't need to take insulin so they're no longer a customer of the doctor and the pharmaceuticals. That's the reason when you see example after example, the same thing with eating saturated fats, uh, with eating high volumes of vegetable oil that the, the AMA talks about, there's no way that you can convince me that they don't know better. The religion they go by is not science, by any stretch of the imagination. But they still clicking with the same thing over and over and over again. They get funded by the people that make these products. That's how these, these nonprofits work. And people are going to do what it takes for them to be able to pay their bills. So is it to cure patients or to keep patients. Now, the local nurse and the local doctor that are just doing what they were told in medical school, I don't think this is a great big conspiracy. I don't think most doctors have time to even think about a lot of this stuff. I think in their day-to-day -day lives, they get three minutes to see a patient, and as soon as they can kind of figure something out, the simplest way is just to get a drug. Unfortunately, now if you have type 2 diabetes, has your doctor told you to go on a carnivore diet? Or a keto diet? If not, you need to be asking why. You need to be thinking about these things in your own personal life. About, about what that means. But what's scary to me when Goldman Sachs is looking at algorithms and looking at um, the profitability because they're a funder of funding and financing companies that can actually cure disease their conclusion is it's a bad investment so when banks start looking at oh yeah you can cure cancer bad investment good luck because where are you going to get the funding for the scientists and the buildings and the experiments and the trials. Where's all that going to come from? It comes from banks. If they see it as a bad investment, there's no money to fund something like that. Just be some dude in his garage that's got the cure for cancer, can maybe help a few neighbors and some people at church or something. And if he gets caught, he goes to jail. What, what this shows me in, 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 to me is how important it is for people to look at the world in a real fashion that's in reality. I don't think the volunteers for the AMA or the or, uh, Diabetes Association or whatever it is, I don't, they, they just want to help people. And that's normally what happens. It's when you get into the higher echelons of these things, business decisions are going to be made. 
and clearly Goldman Sachs was very clear that curing patients is a bad business decision. Because you'll make a ton of money if you had the cure for cancer until, it can, until you lose your patent. Once that happens, everybody's going to go generic. But if everybody's taking a bunch of crap, business model keeps rolling. Once the first inflush of, say, 10, 15 years from the cure from cancer comes in, there's going to be a lot of money there. But see, investors don't look at, at in things the same way that a, a customer of those products would. They want to invest in companies that's going to generate them revenue over the next 50, 60, 100 years. That's how they're looking at it. And if they're looking at it as a bad business model, I think it's going to be some squashing of, of financing because it to them, it's a bad investment. You know, it's like uh, you want to go buy a house that's worth 100000 but you really like it, and the people are asking 500000 The bank or an investor is not going to give you the money to buy a $100,000 house for 500000 because it's a bad investment. That's the way they're looking at this. Just think about that with your own life. What, what does that mean with the way that you're, you're living it there? Now, this other thing, there's a, I haven't seen any of this on the news. But keep in mind, I don't watch a lot of news anymore. And I'm picking this from the slate because it is a liberal kind of blog. So this is coming from outside of the normal but, uh, bubble of libertarianism, a, uh, a freedom constitutionalist, a conservative, a classical liberal. So this is outside of the bubble about this. But I haven't really heard anything about this. Supreme Court just stacked a huge unanimous blow against policing for profit. And I think this has been needed for a long time. I think there's a lot of abuse with this. Now, what this is talking about is Supreme Court struck an extraordinary blow to criminal justice reform on Wednesday, replacing, pla placing real limitations on policing for profit across the country. In a unanimous decision, this is the first time prohibits all 50 states from imposing excessive fines, including seizure of property, on people accused or convicted of a crime. And, and, it, and it goes down to this. Now, there is one thing in here that I found interesting is um, the conservative judges thought this was almost frivolous, apparently. Because there's some quotes in here. But think about what that means. And it, this all came from a ruling called uh, Tim's, T-I-M-B-S, versus Indiana. It's, a, it's a based about a single question of extraordinary importance of the 18th Amendment. Excessive fines may be imposed. It's an ancient right enshrined by the uh, Magna Carta. And it was adopted by the farmers here. 
So what it's saying is there shall not be excessive fines and they and you know stuff imposed on the population for profit for the government. Um, I'm trying to get to that. I'm do, I'm reading this on the phone, so just just hang with me a little bit. Some of the examples were that a lot of the excessive fines and stuff were used to keep black people into the place that they were, you know, after uh, civil rights movement, after the Civil War. Basically, what it's saying is it's allowing states to exploit their residents for huge sums of money, cash, and property. I think this would be an interesting one because I'm not going to go into this in great detail. I just find this fascinating. This could be an interesting one for Tim because this seems like this is right up his alley. And I hadn't listened to Monday's show, so it may be on there. And if so, sorry. I've got it downloaded. I'll be listening to it later today. Um, It's, what, what blows me away is they're admitting that they're seizing property and causing civil fines even for people that are not convicted or even charged with an actual crime. Their assets are seized through civil processing which lacks due process safeguards of criminal law. Law enforcement can seize money, property, including one's home, business, vehicle, it gets to keep the profits and creates a perverse incentive encourages police abuse. But these standards are so loose with so little to no involvement in criminal activity often people often get caught up in the civil asset for forgery. For example, South Carolina police tried to seize an older lady's home because drug deals occurred on her property even though they knew she had no connection to the crime and tried to stop them. She actually tried to stop people from selling drugs on her property in South Carolina. The police knew she had no involvement whatsoever, but they tried to seize her property anyway. Now, the Tim's case illustrates the limitless for, for uh, foreclosure. In 2015, Tim's was charged with stealing heroin or selling heroin to undercover officers in Indiana. He pleaded guilty. A court sentenced him to a year of house arrest, five years probation, and an addiction treatment program, which helped him overcome his opioid addiction. The court also ordered him to pay $1,203 in fines and fees. Okay, but then Indiana hired a private law firm to seize Tim's Land Rover, which he used to transport the heroin. The film filed a civil lawsuit to obtain the car, valued at $42,000, four times the maximum of amount that the fine for the crime he committed was. So the max by law, they wanted four times that in, in forfeiture. That's an excessive fine. Oral arguments in November, multiple justices seemed incredulous that even Indiana would raise the argument. 
here we are in 2018 still litigating incorporation of the Bill of Rights. Justice Neil Gorbachev just scoffed to Indiana Solicitor General Thomas Fisher. Really, come on, General. And on Wednesday, every justice agreed the 14th Amendment applies to guarantee against excessive fines to the state. Ginsburg traced, uh, this is, I mean, this is pretty interesting. Ginsburg, which is not a conservative, traced the right back to Magna Carta through the English Bill of Rights to the, the Virginia Declaration of Rights, of all which influenced the U.S. Constitution by the time the 14th Amendment was ratified, 35 of the 37 states explicitly barred excessive fines. Because, think about this, where we came from, you would just have a tax collector come up and go, you owe me this. If you didn't, if you couldn't pay it, and they know you couldn't pay it, because money was not the same way that it is now, most people bartered. They would simply take your farm, your house, your your supplies, kick you out in the street, and the church did the same exact same thing. So over centuries of, if you want to call them citizens, of being abused by the government with excessive fines. That's where after the Enlightenment, which has a lot to do with our freedom, which we've talked about before, once all that kind of got kicked in, that's actually what led up to the only freedom constitution in the world, which is ours. For the, for the people, not for the government. That's why that's in. In the 14th Amendment, Included to incorporate the excessive fine clause to rein in the harsh inflictions almost is as reenacting slavery. I'm trying to read as fast as I can, guys. But Wednesday's decision leaves some questions unanswered. The court has already ruled that when the federal government seizes money or property, the fine must not be grossly disappointed to the gravity of the offense. Presumably, the same standard now applies to states, but when is a foreclosure grossly disappropriate? Does, Indiana, does Indiana's seizure of Tim's Land Rover meet this standard? Because there's going to be a whole lot of people who's going to want their stuff back after this. In regardless, a great deal to celebrate in, in Tim's versus Indiana, at least at long last. Supreme Court put a federal check on states' multi-million dollar civil asset for forfeiture schemes. People like Tim's will have a fighting chance to get their stuff back when the state seizes it for profit. The Supreme Court is un unlikely to end policing for profit in one final suit, but on Wednesday it made a clear message to states like Indiana that the days of largely unregulated abusive forfeiture is over. <coughs> now, the main person that wrote this was a, was a liberal. 
So, you know, think about this. We automatically today have to assume that if she wrote it, <coughs> that it's got to be bad. That's not the case. And and I think the knee-jerk reaction of, of that is, is sad, personally. But what this means, and, and when you put it, when you look, see, it's kind of, <coughs> excuse me. When you look at these type things, and it's about a drug dealer, nobody cares. But there's also business owners, and this is becoming quite common in places like people that have laundry mats, people that have quick shops, people that have grocery stores, the law-abiding business owners not doing anything wrong, they get a bunch of cash in because that's what people are paying. When you, when you go to Walmart, you can see that about two-thirds of the people pay with credit cards. There's a few percentage still that pay with checks. And the rest, if it's not a big order, they just pull out money and give it to the cash register. And then they walk out with their stuff. There's nothing illegal about that. I mean, it's, it's, it's supposedly still money. But you have the business owner of these businesses, whether it be a laundromat or a grocery store or any other type of business that has a lot to do with cash. I mean, think about back in the days, if you're if as old as I am, you remember there used to be video stores. And you go rent a video for three or four bucks. Well, no one's going to write a check for three or four bucks. You're not going to pull out a credit card with interest for three or four bucks. So you pay cash for three or four bucks. At the end of the day... They sell a thousand videos to customers to rent. At the end of the day, at say four bucks a piece, that's four thousand dollars. They're they're open six days a week, so four times six is uh, twenty-four thousand dollars. My math is right. They go to the bank on Monday to deposit it. They deposit twenty-four thousand dollars in cash. Well, the way the laws are now, the state and the federal guys start getting these alerts because there's a bank account that's putting twenty, twenty-five, thirty thousand dollars of cash in the bank. So, what does the uh, government do? They automatic. And this is state too, by the way. They automatically just seize all of the money inside of the account until they can figure out what's going on. Now, when you run a business, you have to have a thing called cash flow. That's what, you know, you gotta pay workers, you gotta pay taxes, you gotta pay the light bill, you got to restock, you, you've got to pay all the things that no one thinks about when they go into business. Someone's gotta pay all that. That's where cash flow comes in. So these businesses that aren't doing anything illegal, they no longer have somewhere to put their cash so what are they going to do? Because if they're not claiming it, they're illegal. If they put it in the bank, it gets seized. They don't have a cash flow anymore. In a lot of these cases, it takes five and six years before, if the, if the business owner is lucky, that they get their money back. But most businesses, when this happens to, unbeknownst to what most people think about businesses, it's a struggle to keep up everything that you have to do as far as money goes, and you're not working on a huge amount of profit, and you don't have a lot of cash flow. 
So the business owner loses his business because he didn't do anything wrong. He loses his money because he didn't do anything wrong. He probably loses his house because most businesses, to even get enough money to get a loan to do anything to start a business, they have to put every asset they own into collateral so the bank comes and gets their house. So they're businessless, they're moneyless, they're homeless. No one's been convicted. No one's been even accused of anything. But it's been taken out. And once, the, once bureaucrats get their hand on someone else's money, they do not like turning it loose. They don't. So even though this was headed up by liberals on the Supreme Court, I think this is straight-up justice. It now gives a way for when people get stuff seized just because of the day a week it is and the person that's sitting there that can do it with a stamp of a piece of paper, they now have some type of, of blowback where they can go constitutionally from the Supreme Court to get their stuff back. And I think we're going to see a lot of cases start popping up like this. I mean, I was told, this is a true story. When I had that big Dodge truck of mine, I bought that from a place that deals in trucks down in Alabama. And I went down there and I picked one out and I paid cash for it. I think I paid $7,500 for that truck, then I added all that other stuff to it, the rhino lining and all that stuff. But if I, if I remember right, it was sixty five dollars or $7,500. Which back then, that was a lot of money for a used truck. I was down in Del Rio, Texas, and one of the ranch hands was actually a drug dog trainer for the Border Patrol and the local police. That's what he did. He trained the dogs. He did the ranch thing more because he enjoyed it. His real business was the dogs. And I and I asked him, I'm like, well, what do your dogs do around lure? And he goes, they shouldn't do anything. A couple of his dogs keyed off. A couple of the dogs keyed off on the lure. But every single dog went to the cab of my truck and keyed off. And he knew from the dogs that either I've been smoking marijuana or someone's been smoking marijuana. And I've had this truck already for three months, maybe at this point. And I was, I was like, wow, that's pretty impressive. Because, I mean, I know I haven't smoked it. And I know my wife's not smoking it. So the dog can pick that up from three months ago. He said, yeah, but you don't understand what that means. I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, if they pull out dogs at you at a, you know, one of those uh, at the Border Patrol, or they pull the dogs on you when you're at a sobriety test on the side of the road, or for whatever reason, any law enforcement pulls those dogs out, and it keys on the marijuana. They're going to search it. And they're not going to find it because it's not in there anymore. 
But what that what that truly means to you is you're probably going to lose the truck. They're just going to seize it because it's been used with drugs. It's been used in something to do with drugs. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. And he goes, nope. He said, if I was you, I'd try to stay away from dogs as long as possible. He said, eventually, the dogs won't be able to smell it. But it's in the upholstery, it's in the carpet, it's it's in the headliner, it, it's in all that. They can smell it. Eventually, that'll go away. So me buying a truck and just having to be stopped by a policeman at a sobriety test on the side of the road, and they have dogs walk around my truck, they... they Apparently, legally, or maybe not now, but before this ruling, they could go, there's drugs in the truck, we're seizing the truck. Even if I get that truck back, it's probably going to be, at best, a year later, three or four years later. They probably have already sold it by then, and what do they do with the money? Christmas party, new flak vest. You know, try to get the most intimidating looking police cars, new toys, whatever it is, it's going to be gone. I didn't do anything. All through our country, the seizure of people's property is getting more and more common. But you're not going to hear about it on Fox News very often, and you're not going to hear about it very much on any type of liberal news. Because that doesn't help either one of the agendas. So they don't care. But if you happen to get caught in the crossfire of one of these weird things, think how frustrating that would be. Someone sold drugs. So, So basically what this is saying is, like, we don't live at my farm. And uh, two dope heads come off the river on a kayak and they, they sell drugs to each other. I don't know it. I have no earthly idea about that. They trespass on my land and they do that. With the, with the way that the, the police departments now are set up for forfeiture, I could lose my farm. For no other reason besides the profit that's going to make to the police department. Or it's going to go into the general fund of the county, which is going to give the police department attaboys. Either way, it's wrong. So hopefully, this law can start curtailing that a little bit. It's probably going to be a whole new industry of lawyers out there that's going to, that's going to let people know if you get your stuff foreclosed on or seized, not foreclosed, but seized, that you have an opportunity to get it back if you pay us money. Either way, you're losing as a citizen. And I would like to think that in a country like America, that's not something we should have to worry about. But it is. Just keep all this stuff in mind, guys. Just let it marinate a little bit.